Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Pimper, host of the Public Policy Channel, and we are joined today by Jeffrey Bellin, who is the author of Mass Incarceration Nation, How the United States Became Addicted to Prisons and Jails and How It Can Recover, new from Cambridge University Press. Jeff, welcome. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Stephen. Uh, So to kick us off, why don't you tell us a little bit about who you are and what your background is and what it is that brought you to this book? Great. Uh, I'm a professor at William & Mary Law School, where I teach criminal law type topics. Uh, And of interest, I think, for this book, uh, I actually started my legal career as a law clerk to uh, the now famous Merrick Garland and was also a prosecutor in Washington, D.C. after that. And then after a few more years of uh, legal practice, I got into teaching. Uh, And then as for the project, uh, you know, having been a prosecutor, I've thought about these topics for a long time. uh, And often uh, before uh, you know, the last couple of years, thinking that there was not enough attention paid to uh, the kind of broader uh, topic of mass incarceration. And so I was teaching a seminar here at the law school about uh, that topic and trying to get people uh, interested in it. Uh, by the time I wrote the book, uh, the, the world had caught up and people were starting <laughs> to pay attention. Uh, but I still felt like I had a, a kind of unique perspective from being uh, an academic researcher's overview of kind of all the different pieces that were moving, but also this experience as a prosecutor, kind of in the trenches sense of how things were really working on the ground. And so trying to put those things together to, to present like a distinct perspective on uh, what mass incarceration is and, and how we could fix it. Perfect. So what, why don't we start there with a little bit by way of brush clearing. Um, what is mass incarceration or what do you mean by mass incarceration? Yeah, that's a great question. And, um, you know, not not addressed as often as you'd think in the literature. And so the first thing I did uh, in the book is, uh, you know, after the introduction is talk about like what I mean by mass incarceration. And, and I think that's all you can say. Uh, right. Different people have different uh, mm-hmm. definitions of it. For me, uh, I'm, I'm just focused on people in prison and jails. And so uh, that's the incarceration part of it. And then the phenomenon of mass incarceration um, you know, I emphasize in the book that, that we can't, you know, drill down too far and say, like, this is exactly the date that we went from kind of regular incarceration to mass incarceration. But I present three perspectives on why we can feel comfortable calling this phenomenon mass incarceration. Uh, one, a historical one. We can look historically at this country and just see that we've never had the incarceration rates like we've had uh, over the past, say, 40 years. Uh, so historically, there's something distinct in kind from what uh, we used to be doing for the first 200 years of the country. And then uh, comparatively, look at all the other countries of the world we have until it's actually become a little unclear. But uh, it, at the time I wrote the book, we had uh, clearly the highest incarceration rate of any nation uh, in the world. And so that uh, like distinguishes uh, what we're doing from uh, what other countries are doing. And then uh, finally, Um, kind of excess or the idea of like we're incarcerating way too much uh, and talking about kind of the benefits that 
uh, you might get from incarceration and, and how we were uh, overdoing it. So, you know, the, the two parts of the definition, uh, one, kind of which part of this problem am I talking about? And that's just the uh, like imprisonment part of the problem, but also like the why call it uh, mass incarceration, like what makes it uh, unusual or, or notable. And that's the thing I emphasize in the book that kind of we're using that expression to say, despite all the problems in the world, right, climate change and um, pandemics and everything, uh, this too is an unusual and, and very important problem that we need to address. Another distinction that you make in the book is between the criminal, what you call the criminal justice system versus the criminal legal system. What is the distinction that you're making there? Okay, so this is a very uh, nuanced point, and it, and it comes out of uh, attending a lot of academic conferences and dealing uh, with people who are um, kind of critics of the system. And so at these conferences that I attend, uh, many people have stopped, many of the scholars and, and advocates have stopped using the phrase criminal justice system, and they're calling it uh, the, the system, the criminal legal system, or the criminal punishment system, or some variation of it that, that presents kind of negative uh, take on it. And thinking about that terminology uh, got me thinking about uh, like a point that I had noticed for a long time, having practiced uh, criminal law and as a, as a uh, professor, that there were always kind of two kinds of things going on in the system. And this is where the critique I was noticing, this kind of implicit critique of people who were refusing to use the phrase criminal justice system. And I should say a little more about that. They were refusing to use that phrase because they felt the system doesn't do justice. It's kind of unfair yeah. to talk about the system as a justice system uh, or misleading because it's it's not. It's, it's um, just putting people uh, in jail with little attention to whether it's just or not to do so. And uh, so what I what I've thought about for a long time is that there are two parts of the system. There's a and so this is this is what you're asking about. And this is what I do in the book. I try to separate out two aspects of uh, the system that we've got one, which I call the criminal legal system. And this feeds into the critique I was just discussing, which is really more of a regulatory system where uh, government officials are using criminal law to further policy goals. So we're trying to stop, for example, people from abusing drugs. We make drugs unlawful. We ratchet up the penalty for selling drugs. And we put people in prison for drugs. And we're trying to use this, that uh, criminal law to put people uh, to get people to stop doing something. And if they keep doing it, that becomes a big part of the prison population, which is what happened. And that is, a, is the paradigm example I have of the criminal legal system. So it's, it's people that are in prison because they're breaking the law, not necessarily because they've uh, done something kind of morally uh, outrageous or because uh, justice requires that they be placed in prison. And then the distinction uh, with that, I talk about uh, what I call the criminal justice system, and that's you know crimes like homicide and uh, uh, rape and things where these are very uh, awful crimes. And we have a sense as a society that justice requires some response, some response from the government. If, if the government didn't step in and take action in response to, you know, if we caught someone who killed someone, uh, other people would. There'd be some kind of vigilante response or something like that. And so in these cases, it's easy to describe uh, what's going on as a justice system. And so, and then, you know, there's other examples that it becomes less clear, like, well, is this justice or is this legal? But I think you can break the entire system down roughly into uh, parts that are criminal justice system that we have to step in to do justice, and then parts that are criminal legal system that are more like regulatory, so drunk driving. Uh, and um, there's an endless list that I go into in the book. Uh, and I make the point that I can't distinguish every single thing. Sometimes different right. uh, types of offenses can straddle the two categories. But I think you can break down 
uh, broadly what's going on in the system on these two planes. And when you do that, you start to see interesting patterns that, that explain a lot of what happened uh, that gave us mass incarceration. Terrific. So let's let's go back around to, to part of your answer to how you're defining what mass incarceration is. You made reference to historical patterns and you um, drawing on the data, as do I think it is fair to say most folks, identify a shift that takes place in the 1970s where we see this rapid acceleration in incarceration in the U.S., um, can you first talk a little bit about just what is that pattern? What do we see sort of before and after and what is the scale of it? And then talk a little bit, start, sort of walk us through the beginnings of your thinking about how we make sense of what happened. And then we can dig into the the various factors that you point to in trying to make sense of of how we got to this place and then what it is that we can do to get out of it. Great. And, and so I'll, I'll just give a warning to our listeners. Um one of the things I, when I started the project, I thought about uh, pitching the book as a popular press book, so not an academic press book, and um, and for that you have to you have to get an agent. So I talked to a bunch of agents about the project, and and because I wanted to reach a, a larger audience than just necessarily uh, scholars, and uh, I actually had this conversation with an agent. Uh, the agent said like, well, what's your take on mass incarceration? Or they looked at my proposal. And, uh, you know, I said, like, you know, what I'm bringing to it is that there's more nuance, that everything is more complicated than people are presenting it as. And the agent said to me, uh, nuance doesn't sell. <laughs> that's, so, that's, not a, that's not a popular press book. Yeah, so nuance doesn't sell. And so because nuance doesn't sell, uh, the book is in an academic press. But I, I think- So you that, had to settle for Cambridge. <laughs> well, right, right. Which actually I think worked out great. I'm actually very happy because I got to write the book that I think is the right book. Like this is what's mm -hmm. different about this book. Uh, it's that it, it, like I'm not trying to sell any narrative. I'm not trying to make it easy for people to understand or, or get on one side or the other. I'm just telling people like, here's the data and here's what it shows, and here's how you can understand the immense complexity of what's going on. And so one of the points you know, I make in the book is there really isn't a criminal justice system. There's, there's, and there's not just 50 criminal justice systems if we look at all the states. There's thousands of different systems because they're run locally. So there is a federal system, but then there's a system that's different in Seattle and a different system in San Diego and a different system in you know, every rural county in Oklahoma. And so you can find uh, interesting patterns uh, but what makes the phenomenon so amazing and difficult is it's all these different things coming together in different ways to achieve a similar outcome, which is more and more people in prison and jails. But when you're trying to explain that, uh, it becomes complicated. So that's the warning. Right. Uh, and I'll get I'll get to your question. Um, you know, one of the things that I'm I'm willing to be candid about is you know that it all started with a crime surge, and and I think you know everyone would agree if you push them, but different authors kind of. Uh, We'll, we'll talk about it or downplay it in different ways. But in the 1970s, uh, there was a spike in crime. And you can see this clearly in the homicide data, which is the stat that we can measure the best or have most confidence in. And so crime went up a, a lot in the 1970s, violent crime, and that got people's attention. And so, you know, one thing that happened was the spike in crime led to more people going to uh, prison and jail just because there were more people to arrest and things like that. But that's actually a small part of what changed. The bigger change was because of the spike in crime, 
the politicians got interested. And the politicians got interested in in an in a important way that that I think is a nuance that we miss because they they trick us. Uh, but often politicians get interested just rhetorically or symbolically. They just want to kind of symbolically act like they're doing something, but not really do anything. But that's not what happened here. What happened here, and and it's interesting because it was broadly bipartisan. One of the leading uh, voices I point out in the book in the 1970s was Ted Kennedy, who's probably the most liberal. Uh, senator at the time, and he's writing op-eds in the New York Times saying, you know, we need to put these people in prison. We need to close these loopholes. And, you know, and then obviously the Republicans and Nixon with tough on crime uh, was was giving a similar message. And so you had this broad bipartisan coalition to like the, the best way to describe it is like close the revolving door that people perceive the criminal justice system of the time as being. And they they kind of rolled up their sleeves and really sat down to do it. And as I described, there's lots of different systems and lots of different pieces to each of the systems, which I haven't gotten into yet, but but we can talk about later. Um, but the, the politicians really, you know, and a lot of these politicians have been lawyers and they're being advised by people in the system. So they, they really sat down and thought about how can we make sure uh, the, everything's tougher. So we want tougher laws. We want to make sure the people applying the laws are uh, being more punitive. Uh, and so it was the crime surge, yes, that the crime spike that started things. But what really changed was then the laws changed, and they changed the laws in really sophisticated ways to make sure that there were kind of no loopholes, no ways out. And and that change stayed with us even when the crime surge went away. So the crime spike, for reasons we don't really understand, then the crime went down again. And then, but we're stuck. We still had all these really severe laws. And one of the really interesting things you can see in the data. And I, you know, I think it's not talked about uh, outside of my book. Or I haven't seen it. Uh, is what happened is with when the crime went down, you know, in the 1990s, crime went way down, so a, a really big, uh, a positive development. But the number of people being sent to prison and jail stayed the same because yeah. the system, and this is again countless local systems and the federal system, pivoted to focus, you know, not on homicides and burglaries and rapes, but now it's shifted to drug crimes and DWI and gun possession and domestic violence and things that it hadn't been doing before. It was kind of all the leftover severity and the laws were still there. And they, we had all these new police and new prosecutors, and they just shifted their focus to things that, as I described, kind of the easiest uh, cases to find, uh, like, you know, drug cases and, and cases that the police were getting called to and really easy cases to prove. And the combination now of, of both the, you know, the criminal justice offenses, rapes and homicide, plus all these new uh, kind of broadening of the base of the system to capture uh, all these new kind of regulatory offenses. That's what fueled uh, mass incarceration and turned it from what could have been just a spike where crime and incarceration went up and then back down. Instead, uh, crime and incarceration went up. Then crime went down, but incarceration stayed up. And now we've got all these people in prison for longer times. We're bringing in all, all sorts of new pro, uh, people. And that's what's keeping us at this kind of plateau of mass incarceration. So you made reference earlier to sort of the the, the complexity that you tried to to share with us throughout the book about sort of the the the, the many various pieces of this system and the way that they, they work together and how... Uh, almost sort of the inertia, right, of all of those pieces together starts to, again, sort of it, it what arguably justifies its its own existence, sort of it keeps, the machine keeps moving regardless of what it is that is happening to the the thing that, that uh, generated it. So why don't we maybe take a, a few of those pieces? I mean, it looks like it, it, by my read, when we look at the key players that account for more and more people being confined, whether it's uh, prisons after 
after sentencing or jails while they're being held for trial or sentencing. We've got police, we've got prosecutors, we've got judges, and we've got juries to take some of the big categories. Shall we move just through each of those and talk a little bit about the role that you see each of those playing in contributing and sustaining this mass incarceration? Let's start with the police. Yeah, well, can I can I add? Am I allowed to Absolutely. add? Absolutely, of course you can. <laughs> okay. So, and we've but this is this is a little unfair because we already talked about legislatures, but I, I think sure. this, they're like the key first piece. Right. And then and then locally, you should think about also like mayors, right? And, and so people yeah. are like that, and, and or like city councils because there are these like local ordinances. But we've covered that. So, yeah. I, but I just want to make sure they're yeah. on uh, on the uh, radar screen as well. And then and that's right. And so I have this analogy. Because, you know, often there's a lot of scholars who want to point to one of these. So there, if you're a police scholar, you're like, it's the police. And if you're a prosecutor right. scholar, it's the prosecutors. And then, you know, kind of a common idea. So like judges. Um, but the, the analogy I use is the, the prison road analogy. And uh, what, the way I describe it in the book is there's like this road to, that leads to prison. And you get put on the road by the police. So the police are key. They're like the gatekeepers. So you're doing your thing and the police come there. You're on a different road. The police come and they take you and they put you on the prison road. You're kind of on your way. Uh, to prison. And then all these other uh, figures jump in. So the prosecutors can kind of let you off. They have those like exit ramps. Prosecutors control one exit ramp. They can let you off the prison road by not charging you. Uh, You mentioned juries and and they can uh, quit you. Uh, Grand jury cannot indict you. So there's another uh, exit ramp there. And then the judge could dismiss the case or sentence you to not incarceration. So that would get you off the road. Uh, and then after prison, there's parole and probation officers who I also right. want to add to the list, and they can let you out early. They can also increasingly, we see, uh, can bring you back after you've gotten out. And so kind of that whole machinery is what's fueling the uh, swelling of prisons and jails. But the key concept to see is they all have to work together. If any one of them stopped, right, if any one of them wasn't on board with the increasing punitive uh, nature of the system, then we wouldn't get the full prison and jail. So the parole board was letting everyone out, uh, or if the police weren't arresting people, or the prosecutors letting everyone go, or the judges, right? Any one of these actors could stop this from happening. Uh, but it, what's unique about like what happened after the 1970s was not just that the legislature wanted to ratchet up severity and, and, and the voters were on board as well, but kind of everyone else was on board too, to varying degrees, obviously, in different places. Mm-hmm. But as a general matter, uh, everyone was working together. And so you know, if you just look at like, say, let's take one piece, right? And all the pieces are important, which is part of uh, what I'm what I'm talking about. It's not just drugs, obviously, but drugs are a big part, and they're a good place to see uh, how things change because the change in how we treated drug crimes is is dramatic from the 1970s uh, to today. And so, if you look at drugs, you know, the the this is you know the part of the story is we hired a, t- a lot of more police officers, and so you know it's not if they're not getting calls, it's not obvious what the police can do. And one thing the police can do is they can find people selling drugs, you know, anywhere, right? There's always kind of drug sales going on. And so the police started, uh, you know, gradually during this period, say in the 1990s, to go and arrest more people. And I saw this as a prosecutor that they'll like go to areas of downtown DC with an undercover police officer, and they'll um, buy drugs from someone. And then yeah. then the, another team will come in and arrest that person. And so yeah, now you've got a very easy to prove drug sale case, which is a very serious case where I was uh, could be uh, punished by up to 20 years in prison, although that was not common uh, for someone to get that. But just to give you a sense of like how serious these cases were. Uh, and so these cases start flooding into the system, not just sale cases, but also possession cases. And so that and that's the police. The police made a decision to go and, and catch more people 
uh, selling drugs. And I describe these crimes as like crimes that you can find, you know, as many as you look for, right? So there's right. always been, uh, there's kind of no sign of any change in demand for drugs and selling of drugs over this entire period. But what does change is how much the police are looking to catch people who are selling drugs. And so the police catch a lot more people selling drugs over the 80s and 90s and into the 2000s. And then they bring those cases to the prosecutors. And this is a key decision point in this time period is what do prosecutors do? And so prosecutors could have said, well, we, we don't want to use the courts for these drug cases. They're not important. But they didn't say that. The prosecutors just accepted the policy decision that we were going to bring more drug cases into the system. And so they, they evaluated the drug cases the way they had evaluated murder cases and homicide, uh, robbery cases. And they just looked, is there enough evidence to prove this person's guilty? And as the case I just described for you, it was actually really easy for police to meet that threshold because drug cases they could control in a way they couldn't control uh, robberies and rapes and things like that. And so the prosecutor said, okay, we'll bring those cases in. And now the cases are very easy to win at trial because they're all controlled by police witnesses and things like that. And that leads to more people pleading guilty because they can't win a trial. They just can try to get uh, concessions from the prosecutor. And then the cases get to the judges and the judges could say, well, it's just a drug case. We're not going to sentence you uh, severely. But judges didn't say that. Judges were kind of on board or I say this, the judges who were getting appointed and the judges who stayed uh, were on board with the, you know, the drug war and things like that for the most part. And so they are handing down sentences and people have, people are probably thinking now, also there's mandatory minimum sentences. Right. So sometimes the judges don't laws, have, that sort right, of stuff. Yeah, so sometimes the judges don't have discretion, but a lot of times they do. And there's a lot of ways that judges do have discretion. I think judges, I talk about this in the book, judges have the best kind of PR uh, in the sense that they they create this idea that kind of any time the judge does something that is unpopular, it, they've been forced to do it by the law or the, uh, you know, something like that. And when they do something popular, then they're willing to take uh, credit for it. But, it, you know, if you practice in court, you, you'd know uh, that the judge is, is the boss, right? The judge is the boss of the courtroom and uh, has a lot more control than they'll kind of let on. And so, again, the judges are part of this process. And then also the other piece that people talk about rarely because it's kind of like less interesting, but very important is, you know, judges are sending people, uh, not putting people in prison, but putting them on probation. And also uh, people are still getting out of prison and being placed on parole, even though one of the big stories uh, that I talk about is the abolition of parole in a lot of jurisdictions, but there still is parole in a lot of places. And so people are on parole and they get their probation or parole violated either by the judge in a probation case or by the parole officer in a parole case because of the drug crime. And so again, another decision that someone's making to say, all right, you were, you were out, but now you're gonna go back in because you got caught selling drugs, you got caught using drugs. And so each of these actors, that's just the one slice in drugs, but it, it's kind of playing out in all different ways across the system uh, with respect to all different crimes where things that used to be, be being treated outside the system are now being brought into the system. And just, you know, the, the volume of that is, um, is what creates mass incarceration. So, you know, you've, you've, you've talked a number of times about the ways in which sort of, of all of the actors all the way along the line are um, either cooperating or complicit, however you want to frame this. Is there is there an easy answer into your mind as to why that is? Is that just the path of least resistance? It's easier to go along with what seems to be a cultural zeitgeist, or do you think there's something more at work there? Yeah, I think I think you're onto it. I mean, the, the that's one of the things I try to do in the book is like not talk about things that I can't support with evidence, right? right. So there's a lot of theories about you know this is this is what's really going on. Uh, the system is trying to do this. The system is trying to do that. 
And and for me, you know, having been in the system and studied the system, there's not a lot of good evidence of, of like it's just some kind of overarching plan to do this. If you if you actually look at a lot of the um, discussion around the laws that were passed that made things more severe, the arguments were not we're going to pass this law and have more people in prison. They were we're going to pass this severe law and then that's going to stop the crime from happening. And so we you know we wouldn't get more people in prison. We're just going to end drug. You know we're going to no one's going to deal heroin because we're going to make the heroin uh, sentences so high and no one's going to carry a gun because we're going to make weapons possession. Uh, criminal and, and really prosecute it with mandatory minimums. And so, it, you know, it, it looks to me kind of like we talked about at the beginning as explainable as just typical bureaucracy. Like you can understand right. what's going on here by just combining, you know, populist democracy with inept, democ- uh, inept bureaucracy. And, you know, another piece of this is is like the, that we're not actually catching most people who are committing crimes also. So, so the message is not, you know, to people... If you do this crime, you're going to go to prison for 20 years. It's if you do this crime and you're tremendously unlucky, you'll get caught and then you'll you know, potentially get a long prison right. sentence. But one of the things I talk about in the book is how hard it is to actually uh, catch and prosecute and, and, and then punish. The solve rate for most crimes is extraordinarily low, correct? Yeah, and I actually feel worried about telling, like talking about it, but I, I think know. it's a critical part. <laughs> this is where the academic press helps me, right? So maybe right. Uh, it will just be uh, like, I'm just talking to academic audiences. But the, but that's it, what the data say, right? I mean, you're not yeah, making no, it up not, to make a it's, point. It's, yeah, it's, Everyone agrees that knows. And that was what we saw. Like I, I saw this uh, as a prosecutor was like, it was, we were just, inept right we weren't this like overpowering uh, government force we were actually like scandalously uh, unable to catch or, or punish things and so yeah and it just starts with the fact that you know very few people are being uh, caught for crimes and so you get away from homicide homicide's the highest uh, clearance rate so like 60 percent of people who commit homicides are arrested and that's the highest it gets. So it's like right. 30% of reported rapes. But as we know, like most rapes aren't even reported. And so this is why you, the politicians were wrong when they said, it, when we pass this law, this is going to stop this crime. It's just the connection is not there. And all these studies show that you can't kind of deter crimes with punishment. You can potentially deter them if you're if everyone expects to get caught. But people don't necessarily expect to get caught. And the data backs backs them up on that. And so in terms of uh, what can be done about these things. So, so one of the things uh, I, the way I frame the book can I, is. Can I hold, no, okay. hold off on you for that for just a second? Because yeah, I sure. want to hit at least one other point that um, I think you'll agree is important that we pay attention to we haven't talked about yet. Um, and that is, of course, as you well know and point out at some length in the book, uh, the impact of this does not fall equitably across the population. As, of course, I like to think that everybody at this point knows uh, African-Americans, particularly black men, are much more disproportionately likely to be affected by this mass incarceration and not only be incarcerated, but have other aspects of their life disrupted as a consequence. Can you talk a little bit about how it is that you think of the role of race in this? And since you do it in the book, maybe the ways in which you both agree and disagree with someone who listeners may know, Michelle Alexander wrote a very popular, popular press book called The New Jim Crow um, that makes a very explicit sort of race-focused argument. How are you thinking about the ways that the work that race is doing in all of this? And yeah, then we'll great, turn our attention to great solutions. Great question. And, and yeah, thank you for, for uh, asking me to address that. So I have, I have a full chapter in the book that just talks about this. And, and I, uh, as you suggest, I frame it around Michelle Alexander's uh, work because I think it's such an important work and it reached an audience 
uh, and kind of got them thinking about a topic that people uh, hadn't been thinking about before. And one of my frustrations with the reaction to that work is it's it's kind of like um, there's just two camps, one camp that accepts it uncritically and another camp that just dismisses it out of hand and very little uh, effort to like resolve this tension. And so that's kind of uh, the way I frame uh, my discussion of race. The way I view it is I think sh she made some very important points, and but it's an incomplete uh, description of what's going on. And even as, as I think she has said in, in later uh, interviews, she would, she would probably accept uh, that while she frames her critique around the drug war, which is the part of the system that is most racially disproportionate and vulnerable to a race critique. And so that's, I think, why she chose to frame it that way and why the book uh, she wrote is so powerful. Uh, but but that it fits into what we talked about earlier with the criminal justice system and the criminal legal system. And that's how I kind of broaden it. So I think she her critique is most powerful, like a race critique of the system is most powerful when you're talking about the criminal legal system, because these are really policy decisions. There's tons of discretion. So you think about the police sitting around in the police station deciding where to go look for drug dealers. Right. right? The race is going to influence that decision in American society. And it does. And the data back that up. The number of arrests for drug crimes is vastly disproportionate to the prevalence of drug crimes uh, among races in society. And so that that critique is dead on in that area. And I've talked about I talk about some other areas where it's really good weapons, possession uh, crimes map onto that. And um, obviously uh, criminal immigration. Right. Is, there's a uh, now that's with Latino uh, communities, a, a strong uh, race piece there as well. And so there are parts of the critique that ring true. And then there are parts of the critique that are less strong. And those I talk about in the as part of the criminal justice system. And in those areas, so take homicide crimes, the police have less discretion. And so we'd expect to see uh, less of kind of racism uh, driving police decisions. So when they're getting a call about a homicide and they go to solve the homicide, they're going to be more, um, more likely to just track like the demographics of the offenders for that offense. And that's what the data shows as well. And so in the criminal justice system context, the new Jim Crow critique and the race critique is not as strong. And especially as I point out in the book, that in fact, um, for a long time, the criminal justice system was not protecting black victims of crime. And that is a problem. I think we would all agree that, that, that that's uh, problematic. And so that part of the system uh, kind of extending the protections of the criminal justice system to cities and to black victims, uh, that's a good development. And, and we don't want to kind of throw that out when we're uh, trying to reform uh, the system we have. And so that's where I think this theme uh, between focusing on criminal justice system, which I think is, you know, those are crimes we should focus on, but I think penalties have gotten too severe. So we can we can reform that as well. Uh, but the criminal legal system is really the place that we should focus our reform energies. And by doing so, we get rid of both uh, regulatory crimes that are sending people to prison in ways that are counterproductive and also a large part of the uh, unwarranted racial disparities in our system. So perfect. So let's use that as a segue in our last few minutes and talk to us a little bit more about what it is that you think we can and should do to undo uh, this this aberrant period of mass incarceration. Yeah. And so so here, this is where the framing of the book. So, so far we've talked about it, it's like very descriptive. So here's kind of how we got from uh, incarceration rates that were just the same as basically other countries that we compare ourselves to, European countries, and historically have been the case for you know decades and decades, uh, how we got from there to 
uh, what I what we call mass incarceration now, and the um, so that just describing this process and all the different pieces and all the nuance to it to really get a sense of what's going on. And so you might say, well, you know, it's just descriptive and like, well, what do we do now? But the way I frame the book is that work, kind of figuring out the things that changed and separating out the things that changed that are positive from the things that are changed that are not positive, that gives us a solution, right? So we can we can use that descriptive work to figure out what needs to change. We can just go back to how we used to do incarceration and and like so that we have a roadmap for reform kind of like this is we actually know as a society we can function without these incarceration levels because that's how it used to be for decades and decades and decades and we actually had low crime low incarceration we can get back to that um, and the way I uh, describe it now in the book there's there's all different more specific uh, pieces to this but one of the uh, clues or like one of the hints to how we can do that is we can look at the way things have changed uh, between 1970 uh, and today and just see like this is a change where we're not doing anything positive, but we are putting lots more people in prison and we can undo those changes. And that that's a like a roadmap to very significant reform that I think is less um, less scary to people than some of the uh, other types of reforms that are people uh, are talking about that require a lot more speculation about kind of where we'll, we'll end up. This is the Public Policy Channel of the New Books Network, and we have been speaking with Jeffrey Bellin about his new book, Mass Incarceration Nation, Excuse me, How the United States Became Addicted to Prisons and Jails and How It Can Recover, uh, new from Cambridge University Press. Jeff, thank you so much for speaking with us today. Much appreciated. Thank you, Stephen. <laughs>